The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. EBSA CIB, provider of market-leading digital trade finance solutions, is proud to bring you The Money Show. EBSA is a registered FSP. Um, all of your regulars on The Money Show this evening, plus a few little extras thrown into the mix as well. Start off on a different sort of note this evening. I think it's important just to reflect on the year that we've had because it's been a really good year. The show has had a phenomenal 12 months, mostly due to you, frankly, and the fact that um, you communicate with us regularly. You keep us in touch with what's going on in your world. You keep us up to speed with what we need to know about. And it's I'm very grateful for your communication with us. So the lines are always open to us, of course. They are. Um, you can email me directly. Our email addresses are available online. Um, and you can just get in touch and say, I'd like a bit more of this, a bit more of that, a little bit less of that, a bit more of this please um that might be good the show recognized this year in the premier journalism awards in africa the sunlam financial journalist of the year awards a wonderful accolade for the work that we do and um that was a really nice thing we've we've changed a few things some you might have noticed others you may not have noticed we're always open to your ideas as i said and that's a cast out of hundreds a really small cast of people intimately engaged with the show but certainly remarkable people who work together to make sure that the show gets on air each and every single day. Even occasionally, some management types may have a useful comment or two to throw into the mix, and we like those too sometimes. Uh, but the technical producers, we've got two. You might not know this. One in Joburg, one in Cape Town. Uh, we've got Mdutkele, who sits in Joburg most of the time, and uh, George Kikana, off at the moment, because he's got a, a Boxing Day holiday. So Obi Sichuai is standing in for George this evening. Occasionally, there'll be others who move into the mix, and uh, when the, the regulars collapse from exhaustion, there are lots of programmers and sales teams and technical crew and all sorts of people who have, this year, a couple of times more than I would have liked, scrabbled around my ankles looking for loose connections as we've moved offices and change the way we do uh, programming. So thank you for all of that. And last but not least, my producers, Tsejo Mate and, of course, Tikiso, this is the important bit, Anthony Lefifi, who are instrumental every day in making sure that you get a full two-hour show. We communicate from early in the day, uh, bombard them with ideas and grumpy thoughts, some of which they're even allowed to go on air. They really are the engine room of the show, and I really appreciate the hard work and commitment that they put into it each and every single day, especially when at about three or four o'clock I go, why are we doing that? And sometimes it was, well, it was your idea. And I go, well, that's a dumb idea. You should never have said yes to it. And, and then we have a discussion. And um, they are very good-natured about the changing ebb and flow of the news day. So thank you, Team Money Show, for another really, really lovely year, covering one of the... How do we describe our environment? I think one of the most frustrating, one of the most promising, one of the most exciting, one of the most challenging, one of the most infuriating, one of the most self-defeating, inspiring, uplifting, resilient... But, oh, sometimes so annoying business environments on earth. Thank you, 2023. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702.
I mean, just in eyewitness news, you heard uh, eyewitness news going, you know what, we get to a second week with no load shedding. And the fact that we're grateful for it um, tells you all you need to know about our low level of expectations in terms of state-owned enterprises. But one of the many frustrations that we do face is Transnet, and they've snuck their results through. I've always keep an eye out at this time of the year uh, for companies that put results through in the week before Christmas because they think no one's paying attention. Well, we are paying attention. Transnet now under what we're told is act good acting management and uh, a positive development in terms of the acting management. We're hoping for full-time appointments in the new year. Uh, A long overdue change to management across many of its divisions happened in the middle of the year. Well, today they've revealed a 1.6 billion rand loss in the six months to the end of September. They are very keen, if you look at the results and the way they've structured it, say, oh, look, we've got rising revenues and we've had an improvement in EBITDA, earnings before income tax, uh, depreciation and amortization. EBITDA or, as the late legendary investor Charlie Munger described it in slightly more impolite terms, as bulldust earnings. Okay, so we don't believe EBITDA. Um, the reality is that uh, Transnet over the last dozen years or so has been run into the ground. Ports and rail, deeply dysfunctional, inefficient, crippling parts of the economy that depend on them. So it can celebrate its revenue rise of 8.6%, but when you look at its costs that are going up at 9.5, you can see that it's got the balance wrong in the way in which it is run. Higher payroll, higher security expenses, that is a failing of police. Higher electricity costs is a failure of ESCOM. State failure impacting also state-owned enterprises. It must be massively frustrating to work in that environment and to try and pull it all together. Uh, it's massively indebted. If it wasn't for government backing and the, the business rescue people would be running the place by now. That, that much is a reality. But anyway, that's enough about Transnet. Uh, let's look at something else that has had a direct impact on the value of your pension fund today and that is an announcement out of China. Uh, China, the Chinese government announcing that it is clamping down on the online gaming industry once again. It sent tech stocks, most notably for us Nuspers and Process, falling 17% on the day. To my mind, the biggest one day fall that I think I've witnessed in Nuspers and Process in their existence. The latest restrictions from that government include limits on recharging in-game wallets and they're going to demand pop-up warnings for people who are gambling online saying, hold on a second, you're embarked on irrational behavior. I think these are good developments, but they're not going to be good for the profits of these companies in the short term. Arthur Goldstack is a global expert on the technology sector. He's a founder and joint chief and chief executive at Worldwide Works. And it's not the first time, Arthur, that these guys have clamped down, but this feels like a bigger clamp down than perhaps many of the others have been. Good evening, Bruce. Uh, yes, indeed. And I have to agree with you. It's not a bad thing. Uh, that's a clamping down. In, in fact, what it highlights is that uh, gaming companies should be building those kind of regulations into their systems to start with. Same with social networks who allow kids to get addicted. And uh, it took a whistleblower for them to come clean at Facebook, for example, that they weren't doing anything about trying to get kids addicted. Exactly the same thing in the uh, gaming world. And uh, in fact, it was back in 2021 that the Chinese government first clamped down on um, on, on Tencent and uh, began regulating the gaming side of things. They also uh, stopped issuing licenses for new games to be created, which is quite an extreme uh, st- stance to take where you're actually not even, not even allowing innovation to occur in an industry. But that should have sent a really clear message um, to everyone involved. And uh, 
Nostradamus has reduced its exposure to Tencent to some extent. They at one stage owned um, 20, uh, 34% of Tencent when, it, when Nostradamus and Process was still one company. It's now down to below 24, uh, 25%. Um, I'm hoping that they're sold on the 19th of February 2021 because that's when Tencent was at an all-time high market cap. They were worth $916 <laughs> yeah. billion. Dollars, and it's now down to $342 billion. So we actually have seen this crash happening for um, well over two years now, and the real crash uh, occurred in um, November last year. So we've seen a couple of crashes, in fact, in uh, Tencent shares as the Chinese government has clamped down. And this should send a warning to um, everyone in the gaming industry, but also to announce and process to restructure the way they are dependent on Tencent. No, absolutely. I mean, the, at, when they first did the deal, when Chris Becker first did the deal way back in the early 2000s, it was the last throw of the die, literally, in China. They were about to pack their bags and give up on China as a bad job. And Tencent came across Chris Becker's desk and he said, right, give them $33 million, give them another seven in operating capital. I think it came to about $40 million. Um, it was a small amount of money. They got 46% of the company back then and gradually have been reducing their exposure. And in, in Investors have done incredibly well out of Nuspat and more latterly out of Process as well um, o- over many, many years. But certainly the easy money in that market has been made. And, you know, Nuspat and Process are, are absolutely pivotal parts of anybody's investment portfolio. But don't expect, uh, you know, this sort of irrational exuberance that we saw in the huge rally up in the value of these companies to, to persist, unfortunately. For sure. And we've also seen that the Chinese government is very skittish about easy money and people getting too rich too fast. You saw that with uh, Alibaba, where uh, Jack Ma has become almost invisible after being one of the most uh, almost uh, over-the-top Chinese multi-billionaires around. And uh, that didn't sit well with the Chinese government. And they're looking at the likes of Tencent and also saying, out of games, you're addicting our kids and you're making fortunes. Now, step back a little bit. And I think... It's, uh, in a sense, it's also a warning to Western games uh, companies because while uh, Western governments aren't as controlling as uh, China and they're not too concerned with people making too much uh, money, they are very uh, regulatory-minded and they are looking for models to be able to control the, let's call it the irrational exuberance of these kinds of markets. All the greed. The greed. We call it irrational exuberance. All the greed. I think we'll call it greed. Arthur Goldstock, thank you very much indeed. Arthur Goldstock is the chief executive of Worldwide Works. Thank you for coming through for us this evening. Arthur Goldstock, yeah, the big announcement today, the Chinese government clamping down on the cowboy tactics of key players in the Chinese technology sector, amongst those 10 cent um, and new restrictions, which is going to impact, at least in the short term, the profitability of those firms. Uh, This year was an interesting one from many respects, but it marked the 200th anniversary of the arrival in South Africa of probably, this is perhaps unkind, but he doesn't seem to have been that much of a fun guy, uh, one of the dullest but most influential business leaders to find a home in this country. Now, on exactly the anniversary of John Fairburn's arrival in South Africa, I spoke to the journalist and author Matthew Blackman about the founder of Old Mutual, 
That is John Fairburn, in case you're struggling to keep up, and his introduction of insurance to South Africa. Hi, Bruce. Yes. Um, I mean, it, it is remarkable that he has been completely forgotten, really. Um, he did so many things, as you, as you described. And, you know, he, he helped bring in a non-racial democracy to the Cape, all of those things that you talked about. But, you know, he was also interested in how to um, get the business sector in South Africa up and running. And he came to South Africa with a whole lot of ideas from the Scottish Enlightenment and particularly the ideas of Adam Smith. So I think he was an incredible human being. He really, you know, he, he never spent a day without, as his wife said, without worrying about the, you know, mankind and, and all his uh, faults and foibles. So, yes. So um, why, is, why is John Fairburn a historical afterthought? Why... Does why do we not know this guy better? We're going to try and get you, Matthew, on a better quality phone line. Unfortunately, phone line feels this evening as if it does come from eighteen twenty three. Um, it does happen at this time of day sometimes as demand on the cell phone networks grows. But yeah, John Fairburn, we, and his name is kept alive within the which is kept alive within the corridors of Old Mutual. Certainly is in the Old Mutual DNA. I remember going to the Old Mutual head office in London to see Julian Roberts many, many years ago. Uh, what was that? 2008, probably. And um, the, as you went in the front door, there was a door to the left-hand side, and on the door was a sign that said, Fairburn Capital. And it was a homage to... Uh, John Fairburn. I went online today, Matthew Blackman, um, and I found Fairburn Capital, and I don't see any connection to Old Mutual in that Fairburn Capital anymore. It's a property developer that does work in Singapore and in the United Kingdom. Uh, but Old Mutual does sort of you know, keep a, a distant memory of its founder, doesn't it? Yes, it does. I, um, I did an interview with the CEO, Ian Williamson, the other day, and I was quite surprised at how much he knew about Fairburn, because the rest of South Africa seems to have forgotten about him, but certainly at Old Mutual, well, the claim is that they that that they hold him, you know, in high esteem, and um, I think for for good reasons. I mean, he he was a remarkable person, and um, the Old Mutual seems to, you know, acknowledge that, which has struck me as quite surprising, and I was incredibly pleased to find that out. He, I mean, you did mention Adam Smith. Adam Smith, of course, who um, uh, was a, the, the original free market thinker. He, um, he, we, we saw him, uh, John Fairburn, bring Adam Smith's teachings to South Africa. Adam Smith, also Scottish by origin. Scots of a particular generation nowadays have got a reputation for not being uh, the most cheerful of people. Some are on the, the more serious side. Uh, some may describe some people uh, from Scotland at a time in history as being a dour Scot, and certainly John Fairburn didn't seem to have too much joy and laughter. He was hardly the Billy Connolly of his day, was he? No, no, he seems to have, um, and, and, he, and you know, one of the other aspects which may be surprising as a Scot was that he didn't, he didn't like drink, which, uh, you know, that, what? That's, that's a little bit surprising. But, he, yeah, he wasn't the, the, the funnest human being in the world, but he certainly brought to South Africa some incredibly interesting ideas, particularly to do with, you know, what it is to be a company, um, how companies should behave, and why, for example, 
you know, banks were a good idea and how they were socially a good idea and that um, shareholders could make collective decisions over where money went, which before, you know, democracy took hold, that was, you know, it was an early form of democracy. And that's kind of one of the aspects of, of business, I guess, we forget, but Fairburn brought it home to everybody that actually companies are democratic structures, which, you know, struck me as quite an, an unusual take. But, um, you know, it, 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 it was very much part of Fairburn's understanding of life um, that things had to be democratic. And he was also deeply moved by, the, your history tells me, he was deeply moved by the plight of the poor. And a company that today is referred to as Scottish Widows had a much longer title in those days. I think Scottish Widows was founded in about 1815. Uh, and John Fairburn comes to South Africa. He talks about buying banks and privately owned banks and the importance of banks and the importance of banks in facilitating the distribution of wealth um, and the transmission of, of money between businesses. He's again influenced by his Scottish roots and the lessons of this insurance company called Scottish Widows, this idea that you can become member of a mutual assured society where everybody contributes money. And if you do fall on hard times, then this society pays you out. It's, you know, before Stockfells was Stockfells, this was what a Stockfell was, I, I would guess. No, exactly. That is, that's um, perfectly put. And, you know, that's, why he argued, although other members, I think, of the um, Mutual Life Assurance Society had ideas of profit, he particularly had the idea that this structure would help to uplift the poor and also join people from different backgrounds in, in a society, which he saw as, as a hugely beneficial thing for um, society as a whole, if you can get people from the middle class and get people from the working class in one organization, that they would have some social benefit. Matthew Blackman, the author of Legends, co-author of Legends, reflecting on the life of uh, the a guy who, I think, one of our unsung heroes, John Fairburn, the man who founded Old Mutual. He arrived in South Africa 200 years ago this year. Well, the basis of my genius book, or my book, genius was to demonstrate the ingenuity and creativity of South African businesses and to showcase the founders and the people who have taken South African ideas to the world. And I followed that up earlier this year with the Genius Podcast series. In episode eight, I explored what it takes to get your product onto the shelves of multinational chains and stores all over the world. And it turns out it takes years of backbreaking work and hard slog. Who thought that? Uh, the detail of which, of course, is in the case studies. If you listen to it, you will pick it all up. It also, though, is a marvelous tale of a company that started by taking old sailcloth and turning them into bags, recycling used materials, and it grew to a point where today Sealand Gear is making a whole range of sustainable luggage and bags and even some clothing items as well. And like the rest of the crew in Episode 8, the chief executive of Sealand Gear, Adrian Hewlett, was a little bit less enthusiastic about getting his products to international markets. And I found that interesting. I wondered why. So I went for a visit. The interesting part of our business, which took me, I would say, three years to realize was a problem, was in fact our wholesale business and principally our international wholesale business. It was at a top line, very attractive, but a bottom line, a killer. And I guess that was the big learning. 
Because you've got a range of probably, I'm guessing, 100 designs of different bags, different formats, different sizes, different patterns, different color schemes. You've got at least 100 variations on the theme of bag. Correct, correct. You know, if I'm going to delve into where the, the problem in this business was. So one is I got involved in this business in the midst of COVID. Probably not the best time to get involved in an industry that you know very little about. And so hugely challenging. Uh, and obviously then at that point, if I'm honest with myself, I was chasing turnover. And you know, the old saying that, is it turnover is vanity? I'm sure you have a better version of that. But the, the bottom line is... Cash is king, turnover is valid. There we go, there we go. Cash flow is king or something, something like, like that. Lines, yeah. But the point is, I was looking to bring revenue into the business. And sometimes that's revenue at all cost. But what I was not always doing is looking at the unit economics of what is the net extraction that I'm making from my different channels. Now, my different channels, as I said, was corporate gifting, our own retail, wholesale in South Africa, and international wholesale. And the, some of that international wholesale was going into very top-end stores. In fact, nearly all of it. Selfridges, Nordstrom's, Bloomingdale's, Liberty of London, Mr. Porter, really, really high-end stores in the UK and in the US. And they represented over 50% of our top-line revenue. So now if you can imagine... Well, that sales channel, not you know, it's very high risk to cut back on it. It's high risk, but also what you do is you kid yourself into not checking what the unit economic on a sale to one of those really is. Because you see this 50% of your revenue coming from incredible stores. And the other problem, Bruce, is that let's say I go for dinner one night and I tell someone that I work at Sealand and this is a business I'm involved in and they have spotted that we happen to be stocked at Selfridges. That's what they hone in on. So the dinner table conversation is you must be successful because you are stocked at Selfridges in London and you're a little South African brand. So you kid yourself into thinking that that's good for the business until you step away and you go, well, what am I actually making? What was that epiphany for you? The epiphany was Christmas and I was looking at the projected cash flows of this business going over the next six months and they were nowhere. We just never had cash. And I then really decided to deep dive every single channel that we're involved in. What is the amount of money that I'm making and how long does it take me to get the cash out of that environment? And what I realized, and this is, this is my kind of warning to brands out there, is if you're going to undertake export as a business from South Africa, you don't have massive sector experience in that sector. You don't necessarily have experience in logistics and the murky world that is export. And you don't have a massive war chest of cash and supporting funding. If you're producing a particular flagship wine or a chili oil or a salt, a range of salts, for example, it's a fairly homogenous product. Yes. This is a problem because of the range that you're trying to display, the range that you want to make available because people go online and they say, you make a toilet bag, you also make a computer bag, you also make a tog bag. I want all three of those, but Selbridge is only carrying one or two of those. Correct. It becomes a tough conversation. It becomes a tough conversation. The other problem that you also have is when you have a broad range of products like we do, and you have a one-to-one -one discussion with the buyer at Selfridges, the buyer speaks to me as the, the CEO, and I'm passionate about the business, and I tell the story, and the buyer goes, I get it, I love it, I want it. So I'm going to put an opening buy in with you and I'm going to put your products into my stores. That same buyer is not the same person who's responsible for ensuring the sell-through in that store. Now, if you're sitting in Cape Town and you're not flying to London and training the sales staff from the floor of Selfridges and, and, and merchandising, merchandising properly, what it actually ends up happening is that the buyer had a great idea, 
But your bag is sitting in the far corner of Selfridges, which is a big store, by the way. Yes. And it's not selling. With luggage. With luggage, yes. which there's a lot of other luggage. And there's a lot of other choice. And so ultimately what happens is you don't get the sell-through that you need. That same buyer is now going to come back to you a few months later saying, Adrian, I'm afraid I need a discount. And, and suddenly you find yourself in a situation where you're not getting the sell-through that the buyer or yourself thought you were getting. And you're probably ending up having to credit some of the cash that you thought you'd sold in the first place. Summarize for me then three big lessons on when you think you've got the world's greatest product, you want to put it into these global flagship stores, whether it be Bloomingdale's or whether it be Selfridges or Harrods or any one of these stores, David Jones in Australia. What are the three things you need to consider before you even send one sample off? So I think the biggest thing is you need to have first succeeded in your home market. That's the biggest thing for me, is thinking that you can conquer another market before you truly have conquered your own market. It's ego. It's a mistake. So that's the first thing, is really build success in South Africa, which, by the way, is a big enough market to do that. Secondly is being very specific about where you're going to go. In our case, we went to... Selfridges, Liberty, Mr. Porter, Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's. That's five massive retailers who between them have thousands of outlets. We should have just picked one or two and then try and win with the brand in that environment and ideally have feet on the ground who work for you directly to promote the business and the brand in that environment. So many incredibly valuable lessons in the Genius Podcast series, in the Genius Book. Uh, people like Adrian Hewlett giving us of their time, the Chief Executive of Sealand Gear. Just because it seems like a good idea doesn't always make it a good idea. There's a huge logistical enterprise behind getting your smart idea global. Get lessons from the Genius Podcast. Make yourself more interesting this Christmas. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by the market leader in digital trade finance solutions, APSA CIB. APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show on this Friday evening. We're going to be talking to a woman called Andrea Semple this evening. She has been, for the last 20-odd years, creating Christmas decorations. So it's that time of the year where, on our Friday file, we reflect on somebody who's doing creative things with indigenous product. And so we'll chat with Andrea about that. And my producers have worked really hard today on pulling together, I think, a wonderful uh, reflection of 2023 in terms of the Brutal Biz Quiz. So I hope that you will play, and I hope that you will defeat the Money Show team on this final uh, money show of 2023 and that you will come in and play with us. I'll give you an insight into some of the questions coming up in just a couple of minutes. And of course, between seven and eight this evening, some of the best bits from the show this year, including a chat with Andre Derater just before he um, left in a flurry. And we've had the worst year of load shedding. And in the interview, he gives some advice. <laughs> he says, whoever is my successor, this is what you need to worry about. So um, if you know the new chief executive, Executive of ESCOM, please uh, clip the interview and send it to them and say your predecessor, your pre-predecessor, had this experience, and uh, you can you can share it with you can share it with him. Uh, I do love Christmas decorations, as I'm sure you love Christmas decorations. Everybody loves Christmas decorations, but I do like the ones that are traditional with an African twist. And for the past 22 years, Andrea Semple has been making an array of Christmas wreaths and figurines from bush and plants indigenous to the Western Cape. She is the founder of Andrea's Topiary 
Creations. Andrew, where did it all start? I mean, was it just a, like a farm hobby shop? What was it? Um, it started, well, I was never, I've never really been artistic, um, talking back sort of in my childhood days. Um, uh, yeah, so came, so my, creat- my creative side came out in my later life. Um, I grew up in the Eastern Cape. And yeah, it's true. And we spent a lot of time outdoor and in the Eastern Cape bush and felt. And my mom was an avid gardener. And I think that rubbed off with me a bit. And when we left the Eastern Cape, we moved to Elgin in the Western Cape. And I sort of also became passionate about gardening, like my mom. And I spent my, my life in my garden, in fact. I've always had to sort of look at my clock when I had to pick up the kids and think, oh my God, okay, when I get to that weed, I'm stopping. And um, I love topiaries. I love the topiary tree. And I don't know if you know what a topiary tree is. It's a stick with like a lollipop. No. Uh, okay. You know topiaries? I, I don't. I don't. So educate us. Teach us all about topiaries because that's what it's all about, okay. Andrea. Teach okay, us. So yes, yeah, so basically my business is Andrea's topiaries because that's how it started off making a topiary tree, which is basically a pot with a stick and a lollipop on the top. And how it started was I went on a course in Cape Town by Claire Lake and she gave us a terracotta pot with vineyard sticks and a piece of wire holding the vineyard sticks and the sticks were in the pot in Plaza Paris and she put a firm on the top and we literally had to make a ball, create a ball out of sand balls. And that's when the bug bit me and I came home and I felt so inspired, well actually more than inspired. And... Yes, I started doing making them at home and it yeah, became sort of like a hobby and friends started liking my work and um, didn't have much, much space at my own home. So I started working for my mum and dad's pool room at, at their home at the back, in the back. And my business started growing and um, I realized I couldn't afford to keep buying in the storage of the fan boss from the export farmers and that we'd have to start making a plan and trying to preserve it ourselves, which was real trial and error over years because no one was going to give us their recipe. Um, yeah, and it's, just, it's actually just grown and grown. And I don't only use Cape Thanbos, which I preserve, and I buy in from export farmers. I use a lot of um, alien vegetation that's, that grows around us in the area. And we live on a farm, so I'm very privileged to have a lot of the flora growing around us, you know, and yeah, and um, I have... Uh, no, no, it's... It's, it's, it's a massively exciting pro- pro- project here, Andrew, because you're using indigenous vegetation and you're creating jobs locally in the Elgin Valley. And I, I'm, do you work only toward Christmas every year? And I, when I say only, I use the term with respect uh, because there's a huge volume of, 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 uh, of stuff that you produce every single year. Or do you sort of celebrate, do, do you find ways to leverage the talents of the people in the Elgin Valley towards other festivals, other celebrations too? Yes, Bruce. It's becoming. It's be, it's become like that. Easter is another big, um, yeah, a big month for us because we make. We've already started um, making Easter rabbits um, because Easter's in March, and I mean, yeah, yeah. So it's 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 sort of. And I've just recently employed my daughter, so it's, I think it's going to take my business to another level, 
which I didn't really want because I actually wanted to sort of take a back seat a bit. But I think it's actually going to grow even more. And you know, we've got we've got we employed twelve. I've got eight black women, um, which they've been with me for twenty some of them twenty years, and I speak Kosa fluently, which is a great help. And we become like a family. And I've got three men as well who are incredibly creative in in making the reindeer, the rabbits, rhino. I've even I've, in, I've actually been supplying game game lodges with rhino, elephant, and giraffe. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful diversification and anybody who travels uh, between Cape Town and of course the Southern Cape goes past all of those lovely farm stores in the Elgin Valley and sees your produce on the shelves there. But how do you reach your market? Because I would imagine you've got to stop production for Christmas by October. You've got to be ready and then get everything out into market. Well, Bruce, you know, we actually start, um, my business actually starts in June because that is the time where I buy in my 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 foliage from the export farmers, and that is when we is the right correct time to preserve it. And it's very difficult, you know, because you never know what kind of season you're going to have. So it's a real guess of as to how much foliage I need, to, what quantity I need to buy in. And uh, yeah, so the season starts in June. And Bruce is actually sitting here now. Actually, I think. My last orders, I, I did the silo hotel. As I said, I do the hotels as well. And I did a, a three-meter ostrich for the tree for them. But my mom always said to me, I hope you're going to stop your orders. And I said, Mom, this is the time of year when I, it's, it's my busy time. And I cannot say no to people. And it's, it's my time. So I try and make everyone happy who orders, whether it's the day before Christmas, you know, because it, it is our time. Uh, Andrea, and, it's a and, wonderful product, and, and it's a it's a sorry, Andrea. It's a wonderful business, and it's a wonderful project, and the the creations are glorious. Uh, go and have a look at Topia Andrea Andrea's Topiary creations. You can Google them online, and you will find the most glorious creations. And if you are going past those Elgin farm stalls, or if you happen to be at the at the Silo Hotel, and you see this great indigenous plant beautifully woven, interwoven, uh, this, this beautiful sculpture made from all of these indigenous plants, you'll know it came from Andrea's Topiary Creations. She's been doing it for more than two decades now, a lovely family business in the Elgin Valley. Which brings us very neatly to our wrap-up of the Brutal Biz Quiz for 2023. And our producers have been putting together the most devious questions that they can think of from the year. So it's up to you to outwit, outplay and outmaneuver us. We want to beat you this evening, but we equally expect that you would like to beat us. So you give us a call on 011-883-0702-021-446-0567 if you were to play the final Brutal Biz Quiz of 2023. It is the time of the year where you get out and you can make your t-shirt i won the brutal biz quiz and you can wear it for the longest time because we're not going to play the brutal biz quiz until at least the 13th of january so it's almost like a month of bragging rights that you can have as the reigning brutal biz quiz champion so warren buffett co-founded his business of berkshire hathaway with a lawyer and that lawyer turned out to be a pretty useful investor. He unfortunately died at the age of 99 and 9 twelfths fairly recently. What was the name of Warren Buffett's business buddy? You give us a call this evening on 021-446-0567-011-8830702. be fun to have you playing along. I'm happy to play by myself. But I'd like your participation this evening. Warren Buffett's business buddy, 
What was his name? 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Come and play the final Brutal Biz Quiz of 2023. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. Let's see if you can outwit, outplay and outmaneuver us this evening. Warren Buffett's business buddy, Michael, in Mooley Point this evening. Mdu, uh, if you can give me Michael. Uh, what was the name of Warren Buffett's business buddy? Charlie Munger. Charlie Munger. Absolutely right, uh, Michael. Uh, he was he died recently at the age of 99. Now, South Africa's reportedly lost its bid to host which massive global racing event because we're besties with Russia? Michael, anytime you're ready. Oh, Michael, I don't hear Michael, so let's see if um, we can get uh, Dennis on, please, and do. Uh, Dennis is up next. Dennis, we've lost the rights, apparently, to host which major international event because of our relationship with Russia? Um, Bruce, Dennis. I think you... Uh, Pardon? Bruce? Dennis, I, I need an answer from you, please. We've lost the rights, apparently, to host which major international sporting event. He's gone. Uh, let's try Dan in Rosebank next. Uh, Dan, we've lost the rights to host which major international sporting event of which Do- Jody Schechter was a 1970s world champion? Uh, Formula One. Formula One is absolutely right. Apparently, uh, my producers tell me, we've lost the rights to host a Formula One race in the near future. Again, uh, rumour says because of our political alignment with Russia, our so-called neutrality, plans to return to the Kyle Army circuit. uh, We're gaining ground and we hoped that Lewis Hamilton would come, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen in the immediate future. I'd like the name of the Luxury Brands Group, which is also Europe's biggest company and the only European company in the world's top 10 stocks. The top 10 stocks by value. What is the name of that Luxury Brands Group, please, Dan? Gee, I know some of the products, but uh, I'm not... I'm going to have to uh, I'm going to have to pass on that one. It's not Richmond, that's for sure. It's not Richmond. Richmond is the second biggest luxury goods group in the world. This is the world's biggest. So Dan, I'm afraid you're gonged out on that one. Let's try Mandla in a Rosebank this evening. Mandla, the name of that company, please. The Europe's biggest company, now one of the world's biggest, ten biggest by market value. Louis Vuitton. Mother, the phone line's not great. So try me one more time. Um, Louis Vuitton. No, I can't hear Mandla. I don't know if my producers or anybody else can hear Mandla, but I'm afraid 
Uh, we're not going to make that one work for us, Mantla. Terribly sorry. Lines are open for you this evening on 021-446-0567. I'm told Mantla is correct. My producers, okay, producers, you're going to have to translate and translate bloomin' quickly, Mantla, because I'm struggling to hear you this evening. They can hear you, but I can't. There's something dodgy with the connection. Um, LVMH, of course, is the biggest company in Europe, and it is now one of the world's top ten. The name Live in Live Golf refers to what number in Roman numerals? And Mandla is gone, so let's take Michael, who's back and gone. Uh, my goodness me, I can't keep up this evening. Uh, oh, we got, we got Mandla back. Okay, good. Live in Live Golf refers to what number in Roman numerals, Mandla? Uh, sorry, what's the question? The the name Live in Live Golf, L-I-V Golf, refers to a number in Roman numerals. What is that number? Um, uh, 56. You've got some letters confused and mixed around there, Mantle. Want to have one more go before I gong you out? <laughs> Okay. Um, no, no, it's not a team effort. Mandla, Mandla, thank you very much for playing. I'm afraid it's not 56 or 106. It simply isn't. Thank you, Mandla, for playing this evening. Let's try Joseph in Randburg this evening. Joseph, live golf in Roman numerals. Live is what number? 54. 54, absolutely right. Uh, for every uh, the score, if on every hole of a par 72 course were to be birdied and the number of holes to be played at the Live events, of course, also 54. The Live Invitational Series caused lots of controversy this year with big money on the table. Uh, Tina Turner, who died earlier this year, famously insured which part of her body for $3 million? Alex. Joseph? Alex? Okay, uh, my producers tell me you are correct. I'm really struggling to hear this evening, Joseph, so I'm going to uh, say that you are the wizard of the Brutal Biz Quiz this evening. Joseph on the line to us from Randburg. Two answers correct. Yes, Tina Turner famously insured her legs for $3 million. She died at the age of 83 earlier this year. Uh, she joked that she was as famous for her legs as for her voice. I think she was far more famous for her voice, quite frankly. I heard her voice for the first time on the radio and only saw her legs many, many years later. Although they were very good legs. Uh, which country has replaced China as the most populous in the world? That was India this year. The French President Emmanuel Macron has uh, caused great consternation because he wants to raise that country's retirement age to 64. He's uh, seen intensified protests and accusations of undemocratic behavior from the French who like a long lunch um, and would prefer not to work nearly as long as 64. I think we should see retirement ages pushed very beyond 64. That, yeah, I think, you know, when you've got people like Sean Summers re-entering the labor market at the age of 70 this year, um, I think that we should be looking at that and saying perhaps we should be a little bit more 
uh, flexible in our retirement planning and retirement habits. Well done to Joseph. He is the whiz of the Brutal Biz Quiz on this uh, final Biz Quiz of 2023. Coming up in the next hour, some of the best bits from the Money Show from the year that has been, including the uh, discussion that I had with the woman that created a brand new feature on the Money Show. These things happen in weird and wonderful ways. I'll explain it all to you coming up in the next hour here on 702 and Cape Talk.